You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We, we have to make sure that we understand that, A, you're part of a bigger community when you are involved in these things. Uh, and so not only the Facebook and, and or Facebook and Twitter and all these bigger companies, they, they need to see that they have a community responsibility. And I think they do, which is why they're making some of these adjustments. But we as users also need to remember that what we are posting is elevating the game or deflating the game of others. Um, so just look at your own self. And, and if you had to grade yourself as well as far as how effective you are – at creating a safe community for everyone else, what grade would you get? And does it matter to you if you create a safe, healthy community for everyone that sees your Facebook feed? Um, because if it doesn't matter to you, then you, you, you probably ought to quit complaining about what these corporations are doing to you. We all have a responsibility, whether we are a corporation or just an individual. We all have some impact on those people around us. And I've seen it. You've seen it. These exhausting posts by others that, um, are, that bring you down, that make you frustrated, that make you want to somehow either delete them or get them off of your feed and um, – I think when it comes down to it, if all of us just paid a little more attention to the impact we have on others, we might truly help. We might engage a more positive uh, experience with those around us. Um, anyway, it's, I, I think if we're not thinking about it, we probably shouldn't expect and rely on everyone else to be thinking about it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. There, there usually is about half of the times there's some people that just are, have an aversion to the conflict. They just are running from it. They're what we call the withdrawer. And a lot of the time, the other half are what we call pursuers. And they want to engage the conflict. And usually what I find is the pursuer wants to engage it because they want progress. Right? They want to get this talk on so they can fix it and they can make everything good again. Uh, meanwhile, if, when I ask the withdrawer if they want to make progress – Guess what they say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I want progress, too. So the one that runs from conflict also wants progress, but they actually want something else more. And what they tend to want more is peace. They want peace. And they've noticed that every time we go for progress, we don't feel peace. And so what ends up happening is pursuers push to talk for progress at the expense of the other person's peace. And the withdrawer goes for peace at the expense of the other person's progress. So there becomes this standoff, and it is the ultimate human dynamic in standoff in a conflict. One is going for peace, and one is going for progress, and both people want peace and progress. But we've put it at odds with each other. We don't seem to know how to talk to create progress in a peaceful way. So if you wanted a simplification of how to best manage conflict, find a way to make in a peaceful, safe way progress on an idea or an issue. And what you will find out is if you can do that, if you can create peace and safety 
while pursuing your progress, you'll be able to be an incredible communicator. If, however, you dichotomize it and you tend to choose progress over peace and safety, you're going to mess things up. And you're always going to have people running from you. So I just know people like, yeah, well, I'm just going to shoot straight and I'm just going to say it because it's just got to be said. Well, great. Okay, that's fine. But you're going to drive anyone away that, that, that won't feel safe because of that. So usually the best way to know how to handle conflict isn't by having your own theory that you bring in and then just implement your theory. The best way to handle conflict is to watch the people you're in conflict with and pay attention to their signs, right? Try to identify. Do they tend to be a pursuer or a withdrawer? Do they tend to take you on and fight you, debate you, or do they tend to run and hide? Because if they tend to run and hide, then you have to change how you manage the conflict. You have to find a way to make it safe for them to stay in the conversation. Now, you know where I learned to do this? wasn't school, and it wasn't reading books, and it wasn't a PhD. It was sitting down with couples that if they couldn't solve this problem right now in my office, they're probably going to divorce. And it creates such an incredible intensity that we've got to figure out how to do this. And that intensity um, actually sometimes makes it worse, right? Because we're also afraid that we get into fight or flight. But it also allowed us to to actually be more aggressive. It allowed me to say things I wouldn't normally say to people. Um, I used to, when I was a, a coach or a mediator, I would sit down and I would bring them in and I'd always ask them to bring me a picture of their family. So as we were going to mediate a divorce or try to figure out how to mediate a separation or make their marriage work, I wanted to make sure we always had a picture of the family here. Because most of the time when the people were fighting over something silly, it had nothing to do with their family. It really didn't. And once they realized that and we could keep their objective, that higher purpose in place, you'd be amazed at what we're able to do. You'd be amazed at how much nicer we can be when it actually means that, you know, we may walk out of this room done. You'd be amazed at how much nicer people are or how much – Uh, how much more progress we can make when we have to make the progress. So start paying attention to it. Understand that you can have your own theory, you can have your own way, but in the end, if you do not know how to create both safety, uh, peace, and productivity, progress in a conversation, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and there are skills. There's tools out there. There's books. There's information. So go looking for it. If you're afraid of it, don't keep hiding. Let's start, let's start uncovering it and getting really, really effective at it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Again, my, my, uh, my mom would go to work. My parents were divorced. And I – again, to me, that wasn't an incredibly negative thing. I would go out. I'd have all summer – to go play. I could watch a little TV in the morning, get ready, get dressed. My mom would call at home and make sure everyone's alive and doing well. And my sisters were babysitting me, but then I would just go play. And I'll remember, I mean, I totally remember building a fort and it was an awesome fort, totally dangerous. Uh, I I remember being having a nail go in me. I remember stepping in a, on a board that had a nail in it and It hurt, and I probably needed a tetanus shot, and I didn't get it. 
Because I knew I would, uh, I sh- you know, I knew I'd probably need a tetanus shot, so I'll just kind of see if I lose my leg. I even remember worrying for a day. I might lose my leg. But you know what? Hey, it's worth it. The fort's almost done. So it was very empowering. I remember even finding stain that I could use to paint the fort and figuring it out. I remember the bugs infesting the fort. But I would just figure it out on my own. And um, I don't know what it did for me except it just allowed me to see that I can do it and I can figure it out and I can use my curiosity and my creativity. Um, I also remember uh, at a little older age my mom being willing to let me get on our roof and go fix our air conditioner. And when you're a 12, 13, 14-year-old boy climbing up on the roof to go fix the air conditioner, uh, that was pretty empowering. No other friend of mine was allowed to just get up on the roof and go take down the air conditioner and or the air conditioning uh, pads and, and figure it out. I was allowed to do that. And it was work. I had to clean it. I had to vacuum it. But, man, I felt good as a 13-year-old. Yeah, I'm getting up on the roof today with permission. Interestingly, when I'd get up on the roof, all of my friends would want to get up on the roof. And I'm like, yeah, you can't. Sorry. This is a serious responsibility. And so I wonder if we could just allow a little bit more risk, a little bit more uh, danger maybe, um, a little bit more freedom with our children. What might, what might happen? What might happen if we just allowed them to solve some of their own problems? If they happen to be the child that comes and talks to you about stuff, hey, dad, I'm really worried about this and this and this. What would that look like? Last night, I spent some time with my soon-to-be college uh, son when he graduates this year, and uh, we were doing helping him with his um, scholarship applications and and school applications. It's easy to just sit down and do it for him, and especially you know when he throws it out to you at ten thirty at night. Hey, Dad, can you help me with this? So what are we doing with our kids? And are we actually setting them up for success? And, are, and when you make the argument immediately that you're just trying to protect them, who really are you trying to protect? Is it really your child that you're so worried about that you would, you know, write all of their college essays? Is it your child that you're trying to protect when you do that? Or is it you? Is it your deep desire that they just – Go be successful and you can then be a successful parent. And is it too late at that point? I don't know. But I think we all need to be thinking about how we are going about raising our children and working with our kids. Are we giving them every single possible choice we can give them? I've told you before, uh, just the snacks that I've, I saw at church the other day looked like a tossed salad this kid was eating. Instead of it being gummy bears, um, the mother just brought cherry tomatoes, grapes, and cucumbers. Now, choose. Now, if I were the kid, I'd eat all the grapes at that age. Nope, he ate all the cherry tomatoes. Made a mess. Oh, he made a mess. But when he made his mess, the mom didn't clean up the mess. They just handed him a wipey. And a one and a half year old kid started cleaning up his own mess. Can you believe that? And when one of the cucumbers got away from him and rolled, you know, three rows back in church, 
The mother didn't get up in shame and embarrassment and go ah, grab the cucumber. She just opened the chairs and put the boy down, and the boy ran back and got his cucumber. There's life. There's consequences. Now, if we could just create a little space, and that's probably what parenting is about, as a parent is you might recognize a need for something, but what you might want to do is create a little space where you can let the child see the need and then allow the child in that space to go correct his own life and make his life better. And imagine what that would do for them later in life, in high school, when they start to create some space as a parent for them to see that their grades aren't going so well. Or some space for them when they're realizing that they're not, you know, they're not, you know, managing their use of the car very effectively, and allow some of the consequences to happen. Sorry, you can't take the car to the dance because you got a ticket. We talked about it anyway. Parents, we got to trust our kids more to grow up to and, and and allow their life to be theirs and allow their influences and their decisions to be theirs. And I think the sooner we can do it, all of us. Uh, the, the more likely you are to have a child that actually understands that life is about choices and about consequences. Interesting stuff, huh? Not an easy thing. Parenting is not for the weak in heart. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, parent to the highest level you can parent. Libraries. What visuals enter your mind when you hear the word library? Maybe an old curmudgeon shushing you. Maybe remember, you know, sitting on the floor as a child while listening to somebody read a story to you. Or maybe you think of hours of searching computers and bookshelves for an academic assignment. But is the library a thing of the past? The research may surprise you. A few months back, I spoke to Donald Barclay, who is the deputy librarian of the University of California, Merced. We discussed the health of libraries and their possible future. I began the interview by asking if we, as a society, needed to get rid of our libraries. Well, um, I don't think so. I hope not. Yeah, no, that'd be your um, job. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, it only has to last a few more years for me. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, you know, it, it, I, I was it, kind of surprised. I, you know, I started looking at... At the num- when I started looking at the numbers, the best numbers we have, um, which are collected through um, an agency of the federal government about libraries, just showed that um, public libraries are getting more use than ever. That um, um, you know, going the the statistics really only go back to about the beginning of the internet, well, of the web, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, early '90s and. They just showed a steady growth in the number of people using libraries throughout the whole Internet period. Um, and that, that kind of surprised me, actually. Um, and I, I found a similar sort of pattern in uh, academic libraries, although in academic libraries what you saw was people were not asking reference questions that dropped off. People were not um, using print materials and checking them out the way they had been. That dropped off like 50% over 20 years. But um, what you did see were, were, peop- were students going to the library to, for the, to the physical space. And I think there's a couple of reasons why the library as a place, as a physical building, is still important 
Um, it's like a community, right? Of of yeah, of learning, of access to information. Exactly. It's it's a it's a learning place. It's also in a, in a world where you know, frankly, where there's so much concern about security and safety and things being locked down. I mean, I remember as a kid in Idaho, living in Boise, I could ride my bike to the state capitol and walk in the state capitol building and walk around. And nobody even looked at me. You know, right. nowadays, try that at a state capitol. Yeah. You know, you have to go through a metal detector, et cetera, et cetera. So, but libraries are the last place I know of where, in, in this country, where you can go and be somewhere and not have to spend any money and not have to have a reason to be there. Hmm. That's the true. La- I mean, as far as indoor places go. And that's why... That's created a problem for some public libraries, which is a uh, you know a negative image of public libraries. If you go to a public library, especially in a big city, it's full of homeless people. Right. And that's something that has scared you know some people away from libraries. But in spite of that that negative perception, and you see that everywhere. There's even you know there's an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa goes to the Springfield Public Library and it's full of hobos. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's it's mocked like that. People are still using libraries, still going to the public library. Because it's it's a it's sort of the last free indoor public space where you can go, and it's also that place where you can find some peace and quiet. Mm. That's part of it. You know, there's not many places left where you can go and and not be distracted by everything that's going on. Of course, we carry distractions in our pockets um, that's hard to get away from, but. But they're they're kind of quiet distractions, aren't they? (laughs) You can just put your earphones in and quietly be distracted. So it's an interesting thing I heard you say. Um, More and more people – so more and more libraries are being built according to your research. Also, more libraries are being used and accessed except we're not checking out the materials like we used to. That's been cut by half. Well, in public libraries. In public libraries. Right. In public libraries, the checkouts have gone up. Oh, they've gone up. Okay. In, in, in academic libraries, slightly. Okay. In academic libraries, they've gone down. Huh. Because so, yeah. Because in academic libraries, every, so much stuff is electronic. Right. Um, and students can access it from anywhere 24-7. Um, you know, and you know how students are, especially undergraduates. Um, they don't necessarily plan things way in advance. And if yeah. they can get a, an article online at midnight, they're going to use that. You know, that's... That's a natural way for, for people to operate. I wonder if it's a millennial thing, too, um, because I, when I was writing my and, and do, had, had to do a lot of writing, I couldn't go to my office because then everyone would want me to work. So mm-hmm. I had to go and I couldn't go home because my kids would be there and I needed to yeah. write. So I would go to a library. But my son, and this was years ago, but my son, um, he, he, when he needs to study, he doesn't study at home necessarily. He would go to a public library and sit there. And so it's I, I see it almost as – I thought it would have been lost by that generation. But um, apparently the millennials like it as well. Yeah. I think one of the things – and I've heard this from some of my, my colleagues, library colleagues, especially in librarians in bigger cities um, like San Diego, um, Los Angeles, um, students – are either living in dorms or they're packed into apartments to save money. Right. And they can't study at home. Yeah. And the library is a place where they can go and study as long as they want. Now, you can go to Starbucks, you can go to Denny's, but you got to spend some money and, you know, sooner or later they're going to start looking at you funny if you don't buy anything. Right. And it's noisier. The you can go and stay there. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that academic students use library for is that they get lots and lots of group 
projects now. And they have to have a place where five, four or five or six of them can come together and work. And the library is, you know, one of the only places on many campuses where they can really do that. And that's why we have a sort of a, a dichotomy in academic libraries is people come for quiet space, so you have to provide quiet space. But they also come to do group work, so you have to provide whiteboards mm. and tables and right. rooms and meeting where rooms they can, where they can collaborate. And also I, the technology, too, is part of why people come to libraries. And I think, you know, maybe during the... the you know, the, the, the early days of the web, you know, the first 10 years of the web, which is roughly, you know, the, the web was really launched in 92. It caught on in the national consciousness in a big way around 95, where, where it was really, you know, everybody was aware of it. And, but during those early years, libraries, public libraries especially, were a place we could go and get online. Right. And that was a big attraction. And that may have helped, in a way, save libraries through that period um and and but people still go now and, and libraries are doing you know a lot of interesting things public libraries have you know places for groups to meet so there's a knitting club at the library uh-huh. there's a you know a, and it's a free it's a free meeting space i think because right. i used to need i rented places out and you, you could meet at the library but it was just always hard to get one because it was free and everybody would go there right right but so they 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 do provide those kinds of spaces um that you know a lot of public libraries are doing special spaces just to appeal to teenagers so they might a, a really nice public library might have a children's room but they might also have a, a teenager's room huh. with plus, a lot of technology and and furniture and things that appeal to teenagers plus one thing i've seen and this seems to be like libraries fighting the tech world, not fighting it, going with the flow is is the ability now to download uh, ebooks, to download mm-hmm. and download Audible audio recordings of stuff, right. and to just yeah. so I can actually access my library's databases from home and download right. stuff. Yeah, and, and that's a big attraction too. There's, and that, that's been an interesting problem because um, there've been some struggles with publishers um, who. The publishers are still trying to figure out how to make money on ebooks, right? Um, and so there's been a struggle, and in some cases, publishers will not allow their front list books, the, their best sellers, right, out there, to be made available through library ebooks. So um, th- that's a pro- that's a struggle, especially for public libraries because they really deal in best sellers. You know, an academic library. You know, a best-selling academic book nowadays sells a thousand copies worldwide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, l- academic libraries don't really have that problem so much. But a public library where everybody wants to read the latest, you know, Stephen King or John Gresham or, you know, Amy Tan, whoever, whoever, um, that that may be more of a struggle to get those kind of hot books on. Mm. Uh, on an ebook format. Joining us on the phone is Deputy Librarian of UC Merced, uh, University of California Merced campus, and he's um, he is the author of an article. Has the library outlived its usefulness in the age of internet? You'd be surprised. Donald Barclay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So. Um, the technology is making it so – especially interestingly, I loved uh, – when I was getting my doctorate, I loved the ability to just research online, get the materials I wanted, and then have them either delivered to – if I wanted the hard copy, delivered to my university, go pick them up there. Or sometimes I could even actually download the the pieces. Is this going – is our libraries uh, – 
going to be more affected kind of just in the public library or more of the academic institutions? Where do you see both of them going? Well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, clearly the ebook is with us and, you know, you, you occasionally will read articles saying, well, oh, people don't like ebooks anymore. They're done with them. They're back on print. And I think that, um, you know that that there, we're always going to have print around. Right. It's a it's a different experience than reading an ebook, but I would argue that it's a very different experience to read a 2015 edition of David Copperfield than to read David Copperfield as a serial publication in in Britain when it was first published, right. or even reading it as a three decker novel. A different kind of tactile experience reading those things. Um, so, you know, the, the book will be around, and I think what we're going to see is that it's kind of, I, I use automobiles and horses as an analogy. We have automobiles, we still have horses. They're used for a lot of things, mostly for the experience, for, you know, recreationally, although there are places where horses serve real function, you know, where cars just don't work and horses do. And I think we'll always, print will sort of be like that, you know. Um, most of our transportation will be, electronic, but we'll still use the book occasionally, or maybe even more than occasionally. Um, the other thing about the ebook, and I, you know, I have, I've had discussions with this, is people will say, well, you know, we don't, you know, ebooks, the experience, you know, it's just, it's not the same, it's not as good as reading a book, you can't annotate it, you can't flip through it like a book, uh, you know, and, and you'll, there have been studies where people interview college students, and the college students say, yeah, we prefer print to e um, and I think that I think there's some truth to that. The experience of the ebook lacks something, but it's also sort of using the car analogy. It's sort of like looking at the car in 1905 and saying, "Well, this is never going to replace the horse because this car, you know, it, it goes slow and it breaks down and you know, yada yada." Well, cars have evolved, and I think the ebook experience will evolve a lot right. over time. Right. So I, I think that as e-book, the ebook reading experience gets better, people are going to be less likely to say, um, you know, I just don't like ebooks. I, I think also, on the other hand, though, um, the idea that everything's going to be on the internet. Well, there's a lot of obstacles to that, um, and the biggest one is copyright issues, and that's what I was talking about earlier yeah. about, you know, publishers not wanting their their A-list material to be electronically available through libraries anyway. And there's also concern about from publishers about, you know, of course, if, I, if one electronic copy gets out there and somebody copies it, you know, uh, then nobody's buying my, my publication and it's ruining me. So those are all, those are all factors that are going to, until they, those things get solved in some way, which they may never get solved, there's always going to be um, the desire to, to keep at least some things from being electronic. We also have a big problem in, in copyright terms, and you may have heard of something called the Hadi Trust, which is a big online library. Um, it has something like six million full textbooks that hmm. are totally available for people to anyone to read. Wow! And and they're mostly pre nineteen twenty three publications because those are out of copy. Right. Um, but what we have is a a big gap from nineteen twenty four to the present, essentially, where, or, well, at least until E really started to take over, where you've got all of these books that are out there, they, that they've actually been digitized. They could be made available. They're actually sitting in the Hadi Trust, 
but they can't be made available because they're still in copyright. And there's even though maybe this book hasn't been published in 40 years and there's no market for it, clearing the copyright is impossible because you know it's impossible to figure out who owns it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are going to be in copyright limbo for. For years and years and years, I mean, until they, they finally come out of copyright, which could be, you know, 50, 60 years from now. That's true. There's the there's the whole money side of this, isn't there, and the copyright side. And so, I mean, maybe, I guess, too, that was interesting because if, uh, if I would sell a book and I wanted my books in the library system, which you would, that's mm-hmm. 10,000 books sold, right? I mean, to get one in each library, and there oh, might yeah. be two. So you could get yeah. 20,000 books out there just by getting it in the library system, which, yeah, again, like you get... said, the average – I think the average book sold is like 100 books, right? Because there's hundreds well, of thousands of books every year. Well, scholarly books, you know, yeah. selling you know, a few hundred copies is, is doing okay nowadays, at least for a scholarly book. Obviously, popular books sell a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still sell, you know. Stephen King still sells millions, uh, right? So popular writers. So going well. forward, I mean, they're going to have to get through a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of these um, the financials behind it. Um, but in the end, like you were saying earlier, this, this is more of a community kind of center. This is becoming libraries. It sounds like will evolve a little bit more, uh, at least for the next near future until they can fix uh, copyright in- infringement and, and uh, find a way to make money and still get them to the libraries. People will still be checking books out at a higher rate than normal. I mean, it's been going up apparently, not going down, yeah. which is what everyone was assuming. But yeah. the community side of it is also valuable. As a, as, a li- as a kind of an expert in the field of library science, what – I mean, there is a community you can't be – like you were saying, it's a safe place – and it's a quiet place and a place of learning. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I think that that a lot of communities value that, you know, that, that um, and, and, you know, you do have, in every community, you have a lot, you know, you tend to have a lot that have libraries. You have a lot of library supporters, and people are, you know, in general, see the good of it. They, they uh, you know, they, they understand that it's more than, it's more than just about having access to books that it's it's i think it still is a symbol of of community you know one of the interesting stories about about public libraries was um in new york city right after 911 um the public libraries were jammed huh. they they were people were just crowding into them as you know as fast as they could because it was a symbol of coming together in community you know right. it was a refuge from all this horror that was going on in their city. Um, and I think that that still resonates with people. And, you know, you can, you occasionally hear, you know, you'll hear somebody go, well, you know, the argument being, well, you know, why do we need libraries? We're spending public dollars on this. Everything's on the internet. People have computers at home. They're just hangouts for hobos. Um, so, you know, th- there is that, that argument. And, you know, if you want to take a totally objectivist argument, you'd say, well, you know, if libraries are really that valuable, they could make it in the free market. But I think a lot of people, most people in this country anyway, don't see it that way. They see them as symbols of of, of community. And, and the, even though public libraries are usually governmental organizations, they're almost always city or at most county 
organizations. Right. So they're they're not you know it's not like the federal government. The federal government has libraries, of course, but it's not like every town has a federal library. You know, it's not people from D.C. telling you what to do. It's your own community, and you can go to the city council meeting or you can go to the county uh, commissioners meeting and speak about the library and tell them what you think about it. So I think that 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 sense of it being a symbol of of local control and you know people having a voice in things i think that that still resonates with people yeah and, and certainly as a place to come together you know and and but unfortunately you know there there are places where in my own town you know they 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 don't take very good care of the library you know they they um they don't spend a lot of money on it they you know it's kind of run down it's not in the best place you know and that's kind of sad to see but there are other lots of communities plenty of communities we can point to and go you know where libraries are well maintained and they have great programs and they really appeal to the community and you know if there's you know if there are a lot of Hmong speakers in a town you know a good public library will have things for them or if there's you know um a, a, you know a lot of places a lot of spanish speaking people they have really strong programs and collections that appeal to that community you know those kind of libraries and that role of the library, I think, is still really valued, and pe- people get it, why it's important. Right. And you can almost see that they would quit investing in funding, believing that more and more people are going online. But your data, I think, you, you, you know, can't yeah, – it's I, not it's in dispute. Like I said, it surprised me. It's, yeah, it's, that's why it's such, such a valuable uh, piece um, that you wrote there. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here. Donald Barclay. Uh, and your great work um, on this article, Has the Library Outlived Its Usefulness in the Age of the Internet? You'd be surprised. You can find that article on theconversation.com. Again, Donald Barclay is the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California Merced Campus. Thanks for being here, Donald. We'll take a break. Thank you. And appreciate uh, just your work. Opening our minds up, folks, giving you the information you need. The library's not dead. Go use it. And it sounds like it's going to be a while you'll be able to check books out because they're never going to solve the financial side of that. That's a big deal. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, folks. You know, um, in our lives, there's there's a lot of things, big and little, right, that that occupy our mind and our energies. Uh, I've I've kind of I'm a big believer that our thinking deeply impacts what we feel, right? So if we tend to think negative thoughts, you might feel more negative things. If you tend to, um, you know, think that there's a lot of hope and opportunity in the world, you tend to feel that. If you feel that, you tend to go looking for it. You do different things. So thinking leads to feelings, feelings lead to actions, actions lead to what we're becoming. It's a fairly basic, what I call a change model. And um, I found that there's certain little lies, maybe myths, things that we believe that actually may be stunting some of our true growth. It may be stunting us, keeping us from being the person we want to be. And I wanted to review some of those, um, those lies, those myths that uh, that we think that really I think sometimes in a way they depress us they make us a little bit more um, exhausted with our lives one for example one of these hidden lies is the idea that you know if you have a natural gift that's actually better than um, than any other gift you may have acquired over time 
right? So, for example, um, if you're naturally musical and it comes really easy to you and you can just get it and it get you get it really well, I know a lot of people that revere that as actually a better thing, as, as more valuable than the person maybe that isn't naturally as gifted in music but works really hard to get good at it. You know, we have a lot of people that that sit there and, you know, the, the person that has the naturally perfect, you know, shaped body or the naturally healthy um, physique or the one that just naturally, I mean, I've had my sisters frustrated because some of their friends just had natural curl in their hair. But my sisters have to work at it every day to get their hair curly or the guy that's just naturally charismatic or, um, you know, the one that just naturally is smart. Is that a better gift than the one that works at it? The reality is, is some of us, you know, there's this different mindset we can pick up. And we've talked about it on the show with Carol Dweck, whether you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And people that think that things are fixed, they are just what they are. They like the idea that some people are just naturally gifted. But there's another mindset that says, no, 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 we can grow. We can become better. We can adapt and we can get good at stuff that maybe we weren't naturally good at. And that growth mindset is a really important mindset because if you think that only natural gifts are worth anything, then you might be setting yourself up to actually never have to do anything because the reality is a lot of our biggest you know, advancements in life didn't come just naturally. They came by people working and adapting and changing. So let's blow up that myth that if somebody's just naturally good at something, they're obviously better than those that work hard. If you've never, if you've ever met somebody that was naturally gifted that never worked on their gift, you know very quickly that having a gift that you don't work on doesn't make you that great. It actually may make make you lose the gift, right? So it might be more important to realize that the best gifts are the ones that we actually appreciate a lot and the most and that we work on day in and day out. Another thing that another lie that I think we tell ourselves is that, oh, I could never handle X. If this happened to me, I could never handle that. I, I mean, I could never handle losing a child. I could never handle uh, my parents dying. I could never handle such a thing. Be careful ever telling yourself that lie because the reality is you could You know, humans are notoriously bad at predicting what we're good at and what we're not good at. I mean, most people think they're really good drivers, and the reality is, eh, you're not so good. You really aren't a great driver. So be careful thinking that you could never do something simply because, you know, A, you may have to to face that terror someday, and the reality is uh, you'll handle it. You wouldn't want to handle it. It maybe is a better thing to say. I could never handle X. Instead of saying that, maybe say, I would never want to handle X. But if it happened to you, the reality is you'd, you'd handle it and you'd probably kill it. You'd do a great job. Again, yesterday, if you remember, I was talking about my friend, uh, David Colliker, who has a brain tumor and he wrote a book, Everyone Should Have a Brain Tumor. Um, and the reality is he would he would have probably thought I could never handle a brain tumor. I, I could never go through that. But when you're forced to go through something, you know what's amazing? You go through it and you'll handle it and you won't even just handle it. You'll do an awesome job at it. And then interestingly, it becomes 
not so much of just a horrible trial that destroyed you. It becomes the thing that refines you. It becomes the thing that actually makes you who you really are. So uh, two myths that we got to watch out for, two lies that we tend to tell ourselves. The natural gifts are the only good gifts, right? And that I could never handle X. And in reality, all gifts that you work hard at are worth having, and uh, you can handle a lot more than you ever thought you could. Anyway, just a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. Dr. Matt will continue the journey more straight ahead. We'll be talking about the little things likable people do to hold back their temper. This is The Matt Townsend Show. have some pet peeves that just push you over the edge. For some people, it's dishes in the sink. For others, it's cars not using their turn signals. Or for others, it's, it's you know, it's just the correct way that the, you have to put the toilet paper on the roll, right? There's just, there's just the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. Well, sometimes it is simply the last straw when they, those needs aren't met for us and we break and we just completely lose it. So what are some tips for dealing with your temper? Gia Ganesh, a career strategist and empowerment coach, joined us uh, a while ago to give us some tips on handling our temper. I started the interview by asking, are our tempers something that we need to learn to control, right? Absolutely, Matt. And I think uh, in today's busy world, tempers seem to flare up all around us, even at the drop of a pin or drop of a hat. And oh, like yeah. you said, you know, just seeing the toilet paper <laughs> sitting in the wrong direction could <laughs> cause a huge, huge uh, uh, burst of temper at home. You know, so you are right about that. Is, is, why is it that some of us are more easily provoked than others? Oh, that's a great question, Matt. And there are a few reasons that we can talk about as to why tempers can be triggered, you know. And let me talk about a few here. Okay? Yeah, the first please. one is expectations from others. You know, we tend to expect so much from others. And when our expectations are not met, we feel disappointed, frustrated, let down, and that may trigger a temper burst, you know. So why is it that you expect your spouse to put, your, put the toilet paper in a particular direction? Why can't you do it? Like, for yeah. example, right? Yeah. Another reason, Matt, is that when we feel exploited or insecure or we feel emotions like fear, guilt, shame, vulnerability, or embarrassment, we may mask it by putting on an anger front, you know? Mm. And the reason that uh, people do that is because they don't want to connect with that true inner feeling that they're going through. When we lose our temper, we get a temporary boost of self-esteem. You know, it's just a momentary. It's really a minute, but you get that boost. People would rather go with feeling that boost of self-esteem through shouting or, you know, and expressing their anger in various ways than to feel that pain of shame or embarrassment or fear. And that is another reason that temper tantrums are quite common. It's a, it really is. It's interesting because it's you do get that little bo- boost of self-esteem, and you can also see that you know if you've been shamed if you if you feel vulnerable you this is just a, a protective mechanism and and yet we we don't always see it as that right so when when i'm feeling vulnerable or somebody i felt like i'm i'm shamed or or feel ashamed um i i i end up instead you blow it up and you kind of push all of that energy onto the other partner is that just our means of kind of confusing the situation so it's not so real you're you're right, Matt. It's just our way of coping with that situation. 
And let me talk to you about the third reason, and I'll tie it back together. Okay. And the third reason is, uh, it may sound surprising, but our childhood and our upbringing may influence how we react to things. Hmm. So, for example, um, what we've seen when growing up as ways to express feelings, you know, both positive and negative. Maybe we grew up in an environment where somebody who always expressed their anger and who is the loudest always got their way around. Yeah, true. True. And then that becomes a deep-rooted belief in you that, okay, that's how I, I will get my way around with the world, by always being the loudest and by being bossy or being throwing a temper tantrum, right? So yeah. That's, that's like a... Back, oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Gia. No, no, I'm sorry, Matt. I was just going to say that that ties back to what you brought up earlier about our self-defensive de- um, mechanism. So when we've seen this happen or we've come across a situation where we know we are going to feel that pain of vulnerability or shame or fear that we may have experienced earlier in our childhood many times, you know, we may have been shamed for getting low grades or being fat or, you know, there could be a number of reasons why we may have been uh, shamed or felt vulnerable. So when we, our brains go into that um, defensive mechanism by adopting a different front, and in this case, we're talking about adopting a temper front, to mask that feeling, I don't want, our, you know, our brains don't want to go through that feeling again or feeling that pain. So they put on this front and then completely lose sight of that feeling of shame and vulnerability, and that is pushed aside. Yeah. So you're right about the fact that it is a defensive mechanism as well. And, and it's, it's interesting because it, it, it happens automatically, right? It's not like yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I will now blow this up so as to avoid being vulnerable. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a pattern we've created, and we may have even created it, like you're saying, at a young age, at a very Absolutely. young age. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Subconscious, right? It's a subconscious part of us that we don't even realize exists, and it's, uh, it's a mindset almost, you know? Yeah, no, it's scary. It's a scary mindset because I mean, just because we're not we're not leading it, are we? I mean, it, it's almost like, yeah. that. Almost seems like it's outside of us, even though we're the ones that created it. Exactly, you're right, man. You're right. Yeah. And I'll going back to the reasons as to why we may be easily triggered is, uh, of course, last but not the least, stress, Matt. It's a huge trigger for temper, right? Yeah. Our lives are so fast-paced nowadays that we seem to be juggling so many things that overwhelm and stress seem to arise out of nowhere at the drop of a hat. So stress is another huge trigger for temper. And it doesn't seem like that's going down in most of us either, you know. Yeah, not anytime soon. So, so we, yeah. we – we, is it – it seems like sometimes – and maybe it's just that's what we've learned, but it almost seems like sometimes you could – you can see generations of of angry temper people, right? But people that have and and show and demonstrate anger. It might be grandpa had it, dad got yes. grandpa's temper, I got dad's temper. Um, is it handed down too genetically? It seems like there's something there. There seems to be a small genetic component to it, Matt. But it's also the fact that you've seen that. You've seen it all through your childhood, right? You've seen your grandpa shouting. Yeah. and having a temper, then you've seen your dad do it. And you've seen that those are the people that rule the house. They got their way. They they were the masters of the house. So like we already talked about a little bit earlier, Matt, is the fact that it's become a part of you. You've seen that, and you believe that is the world. Mm. That is your world when you were younger. 
and you grow up and that's the way you react with the world around you. Right. And and if my if a parent did use uh, anger and temper and um, yelling at their child, that child may have felt more shame. So they may have built deeper patterns of shame management and and temper and manage and using tempers the way they all keep passing it on. Yes. Mm. It's a tangled web, isn't it, Gia? It it is totally and you need you we've seen this like even these unfortunate shootings could be a result of just simple things like not knowing how to manage temper or not knowing how to express those feelings of shame or pain or vulnerability or embarrassment that the child could have been feeling. That was Gia Ganesh, uh, again, a career strategist and an empowerment coach, helping us understand how to manage our emotion, our reactivity, our anger a little bit better. And that's, remember, one of the goals of the show is to help you get the tools you need to uh, live a healthier, happier life. And we'll continue the journey more straight ahead right here on The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Uh, As we talk about depression or anxiety or I guess really any mental health issue, um, there is power in knowing your own, know, knowing yourself, right, and and getting a better insight into who you are. Many times when people will come see me, I'll just casually ask, uh, you know, do you think you're depressed? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. And then I ask, have you done anything about it? Have you sought counseling? Have you, have you talked to a doctor about it? Most of the times, no, no. Um, why? And it makes sense, though, right? Because we we don't want to do these changes. We don't want to be pegged as broken. We don't want to uh, rely on someone else to help us. We think we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of it. One of the problems with depression, though, is sometimes you're already behind. And it might just be chemically. It might be just situationally. Your brain is just behind in in its ability to make the right decisions in the right timing, in the right way, in the right space. So sometimes it might help to just have an external intervention. And that intervention might be um, some antidepressants for a while, or it might be uh, some cognitive therapy um, and talk therapy for a while. Whatever it is, uh, getting a little boost, a little help is going to help one way or another because it's going to give you a chance to shift how you think about it, how you feel about it. But don't wait, We, we um, especially if you've seen the pattern over and over and over. One of the best ways I've ever found to know if you need help is if it's starting to seriously impact your life, if it impacts your interaction with your children and your family, if you're starting to medicate, um, if you're starting to pull yourself away from everyone else, or if you're having aggressive outbursts, right? So if all of these things are starting to happen and it's impacting your life more overtly, more obviously, then it's time to do something. And the sooner you can do it, the better. Um, And I guess what I would do is just seek out somebody you know. And the other reason I would do it is because if you can have this happen to you, it's very likely your children could have it happen to them. And our kids need to see that we 
are doing what we can with our own mental health issues so that we can hand down these lessons, these learnings, these teachings to the next generation so they can handle their DNA. They can handle their genetics. We hand these traditions down, uh, whether it's a chemical tradition, whether it's a psychological tradition, whether it's abuse, we hand these down to the next generation. So the more we take on learning how to handle it and fix it, the better off we all are. It might very well be the greatest gift you can hand your children is a playbook, a tools book, a tool set for how to manage your mental health issues. Uh, We'll wrap it up with a quote from Thomas Edison. Our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Giving up on the issue and not trying to solve it, not trying to ever deal with it, not trying to talk about it, makes total sense, right, when you're depressed. The problem is it doesn't make any progress. And all we need is a little bit of progress today on it, a little bit more understanding, a little bit uh, of, of solutions that work, and we can eventually build a way, a, a literally, literally a ladder out of our depression or our mental health issues. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Everybody would like to motivate, move, influence, somehow influence another person, wouldn't you? And you want to. I mean, you need to. These are your kids. These are the people you love. These are the people that uh, you've been given a responsibility or a stewardship over, like your family, how powerful would it be if you could effectively just move them? Not to – I mean, I, I can get anybody to move if I make enough noise, right? I can scare you. I can intimidate you. I can, I can do so many things to get you to do what I want you to do. The problem with, with it is I also have to learn to motivate you in a way – today that I can still motivate you tomorrow. And the problem with some of our methods of motivating another human being is we do it at the we, – we actually do it and rob from tomorrow. Um, for example, if I use force and fear and coercion to, to motivate my children, I mean, I guess it works, but eventually my kids will be bigger than me. <laughs> They'll be stronger than me, they will be taller than me, and my influence will evaporate. My power will be gone because they won't respect me, they won't honor me as a parent, they just won't be there for me. So ask yourself about how you choose to motivate, how you choose to inspire or influence your family or your friends, your neighbors. Are you doing it in a way that actually is additive that, that makes it so it's easier to be more powerful tomorrow and even more powerful the next day because how you choose to influence them in every moment starts to create uh, more power down the road. The, ba- the best way to do that would probably be, right, to be, to, be, um, to be more principled in how you try to influence. A couple rules I give, though, if, we, if you want to quietly motivate others. First rule is a very basic rule. You must first be influenced by them. Before walking in thinking you know what someone needs, wouldn't it make more sense to find out what they need? One of the the things I do a lot when I do public speaking um, or just, you know, events or whatever, I always like to open it up to whatever the topic is. If we're talking about relationships, I would just to the group say, what makes relationships so difficult? 
And by just opening it up, you'll start to have hands go up. And as you start taking hands and start hearing what they're saying, I've noticed that many times just what they say, and sometimes I'll write it down on a board, sometimes I'll just go with what we're talking about, but I start to actually have my entire speech written for me. Okay, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about this. But be influenced. And the more open you are to being influenced by somebody, they then start to trust you, right? They start to actually – they start to engage you more because you are – you're actually willing to get into them first before just like laying down the law. Another rule is simply um, when you're listening to them and open to what they're doing, listen for what they're excited about. Listen for what passion they are bringing to the equation. One of the most powerful ways I found to motivate somebody is to allow them to just kind of be what they like to be. Let them go where they want to go with their, uh, with their sports, with their athletics, with their extracurricular. Many times as parents, we just want our kids to be a football player because we were a football player. But they come out and they, they're an artist and they want to be artistic and they really are into drawing. And uh, but you're like drawing isn't football and you really got to study and I don't know. Can you just allow people to be what they want to be? And you'll find that out when you listen to them. Um, Another uh, powerful way to influence, I think, people is to give them role models of of people that that they might kind of naturally lean toward, people they might be interested in, and let those role models uh, kind of be their guide. Find If somebody really loves basketball, for example, go find them a prototype. Go find them somebody that you know came from circumstances like you're coming from and help them find a role model. Help them find uh, even an NBA star that is similar to them, came from a similar background. Go learn their story. Go find out how they made it pro. Go find out about their work ethic and let kind of a prototype um, be there for them. Something that can show them that they can do this too. Sometimes the most motivating thing that can get anybody out of a, a hole is simply to know that someone else has done it. And you, you can be very powerful about that. Another thing that's really powerful, a way to influence is be their backer, right? Be the person behind their passion and help them get there. Put your money down to get them to art classes, drive them to art classes, talk about their art, show their art, give their art away, brag about their art, do whatever you can to highlight what they really do like, what they really are passionate about. Just some basic ideas, right, to influence another person and and to motivate them, especially as we see more and more of our children. We wonder, are they motivated at all? Is Are they doing anything in there? They don't seem to move off the couch anymore, but they will. If you'll dig into them, understand them, find what they're good at, find what they like, and then partner with them. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Compared to the scientific model, there really are a lot of people that question science. And, I mean, science has let us down a few times, right? I mean, uh, some past wrong science includes dinosaurs died from a volcano. Uh, There's a lot of genetic differences between the races. Tobacco is good for you. There are only nine planets. There's only one solar system, and water only exists on the Earth. There's some theories that have been uh, disproven, and yet um, we we so need science, and we also, I think, need other other intuitive theories where we use our intuition to better understand something that science maybe can't explain to you. Um, other issues like faith and and an issue of hope and finding hope or 
just what creates a miracle um, in your eyes? Does everything have to be explained by science? Also, I've just noticed how sometimes science can let you down. I have someone close to me who has who's had uh, back pain, went in, got some shots in their back, and they just didn't work. And they were in a lot of pain. And they actually believed, based on what doctors were telling them, that, yeah, their, their back's going to be messed up forever, and they're probably going to degenerate, and then they're just going to be in a wheelchair, and slowly their life is just going to disintegrate. And then they showed those exact same images to another doctor and another doctor, actually two other doctors and two other doctors are like, what? No, no. I mean, that's normal. You're, you're normal. That's normal degeneration for your age. So yeah, the shots just weren't working. What kind of shot was it? What did they do? Where did they put the shot? Oh no, you need this kind of shot. And then that little information from another scientist helped that patient go clarify for their doctor what else could be going on? And then that person went in and had the shot where they needed the shot, and it worked like a charm. Ah, science. Isn't it great? But science impacts our head. It impacts our minds. It impacts our belief system, which is why at some point we might want to trust some of our intuition at times. We might want to trust some of our inspiration. When we get light or a, a thought in our mind— how many times have you ever gotten up in the morning? I had this happen to me the other day. I just wake up and there's this thought in my mind. And then I go research that thought and bada boom, bada bing, I've got an answer to an issue or a riddle that I've been battling with for months. I've got answers. And I believe there are answers out there for everybody. But you have to be willing to look more than just, you know, at your phone. And more than just what you were taught once. Dig deeper. How many times has somebody just eliminated a theory or, you know, a religious belief simply because they, uh, they just don't believe it, but they haven't studied it. They haven't evaluated it. They haven't worked on it. They haven't prayed about it, but they're going to eliminate the idea. And by the way, feel incredibly confident in eliminating it. One of my rules is if you have incredible confidence to the point of arrogance about an idea, you probably don't have the right idea. <laughs> because th- what I have found, the ideas that, to me that I, I have received and know most boldly and strongly don't make me more arrogant. They actually make me more humble. When you know truth, it humbles you. It's not something that should make you arrogant. Arrogance sets sets you up for the fall, right? Pride will set you up for the fall. So a little coach's corner for you, just helping you see that there's other thoughts out there and there's other thoughts inside of you that are coming from, I believe, a different source, a higher source, a better source, a more accurate source, a source maybe that's more aligned to you and what you need to bring to this world. And man, if all of us could connect into that source, woo, look out. We could create something powerful. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
The challenges confronting today's marriages are varied and complex. We are living longer, our parents are living longer, and the financial and work and life pressures that couples are trying to bear are more daunting than ever before. Yet couples are trying to make their marriages work better and better and uh, and, and make it and actually do it in a way that that's enjoyable, right? That they're connected and, and not just getting by, but, uh, but thriving. And under the best circumstances, though, you can expect some rough patches to happen in your relationship. Uh, joining us to talk about her book, The Rough uh, Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together, Daphne DeMarneff um, is here to discuss the challenges that we are confronting and some uh, tricks that we can use to get through those rough patches. Daphne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. What, um, I mean, are, are there any new issues? I do a lot of marriage uh, coaching and, and work on relationships. Do you see any new issues uh, that are maybe impacting our relationships today that, that maybe weren't impacting us 10 years ago? Well, yes, I think there are a number of issues that are specific to our time, and um, many of your listeners may have a flash of recognition thinking about uh, the role of um, our phones, the role of the internet, um, the role of the constant thrumming 24-7 sort of input from the culture. Um, You know, over 30 years or so, men's and women's roles have changed. Um, More uh, people are in couples where both people have jobs, so both people are juggling their child care responsibilities, their community responsibilities, their job responsibilities. And so that makes everybody busier. Um, and then on top of that, you have kind of a lot of distraction. And so, you know, my principle in this book is that really emotions are at the core mm. of who we are. And connecting emotionally is at the core of who we are. And yet that's not always easy. It feels risky. It feels vulnerable. And so distractions can some, sometimes um, end up being a kind of uh, escape from the difficulties of that. And they're just everywhere all the time. Absolutely. And it, it even seems like more and more in today's literature, we, we you know, we, I think connection has always been a desire, a goal of every human being, but it seems like there's even a stronger emphasis on connecting, on belonging, mm-hmm. and, you know, today than there's ever been in the literature. And um, so I guess, I guess that, like you're saying, the distractions create a problem to this connecting. It gives us something else to do. Um, and meanwhile, we have the same old problems too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think psychological science has, and and brain science even, has really made huge uh, discoveries and strides in the past few decades in terms of how fundamentally connected human beings are and have to be. And I think that that actually helps people think about these primary deep family relationships is something that they really want to nurture and sustain. You know, this sort of divorce boom of the 80s is is over. (laughs) People are really trying to do this, but, you know, it's complicated for for a variety of reasons. It really is. Do you, um, when you look at it, too, I mean, with the advancing technology, I mean, the irony is it should also enhance our abilities to connect. I mean, it should free up some of our time because of the technology. But um, also, too, it's, it has this addictive nature to it where we, we actually can't put it down sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, um, 
you know, being a human being, we all need attachment. And yet attachment is a really interesting thing. If you think of attachment with your children, you need to hug them and love them and care for them every day. You can't hug them, you know, last week and say that's enough, right? So right. the nature of attachment is that you're always renewing it and you're always deepening it through daily contact and connection. And everyone has really busy lives and emotions can be kind of a messy and inconvenient. If you feel, you know, your partner hurt your feelings, it might take a real conversation that you don't feel you have time to have. So there's a lot of stresses and tensions that create this um, tendency of people to sort of ignore uh, the repairing and the connecting and the working through difficult emotions to a point of feeling close. And it's understandable, as you say, given all this distraction. And it's also understandable based on just natural human fear and vulnerability about, you know, putting your tender emotions out there. And and I think one thing that could really help your listeners is, you know, the work of marriage isn't the chores of it. It's the staying emotionally vulnerable. You know, it's a good day for you if you keep trying to reach out and keep trying to connect. And that's not always easy. It can take work. Mm. Especially for those that have had, uh, you know, they've had a hiccup and, and they've kind of disconnected for a few years. Sometimes that idea of reconnecting, being vulnerable again, you know, maybe forgiving the the problem that happened a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, that almost seems like a chasm that's just too wide. Well, exactly. So part of the reason I wrote this book is, number one, to normalize that in any long relationship, there are going to be hiccups, there are going to be complications, there are going to be difficulties or events that you couldn't have foreseen. So that's a given, and that doesn't mean something's fatally flawed. It means that you're human and you're struggling along. But the way that it works when people just get to that chasm and they say, you know, it's not worth it, there's a lot of buildup to that. And I think it generally has to do with people can, uh, just subtly over time turning away from each other and not having those hard conversations and reengaging around the difficulties of their relationship. And so as you sort of become more walled off and more independent, that can actually lead to some of these hiccups, right? Because mm. people aren't feeling that they're getting what they need from the, the, the relationship. Do you sense that it's impacting our children? I mean, as as because as this really is, you know, it used to be other problems we had in, that created those difficult patches, maybe alcoholic issues, you know, infidelity, um, financial pressures, problems in the past. In the future, or I mean, in the present, it's more technology that keeps us distant. It's it's just um, other, you know, there, there's other forces that are maybe bringing more temptations to us online. Do you um, do you sense that we're we're actually understanding how to do it? Are we getting how to handle the 21st century marriage, um, or do we really kind of need a, a new set of tools? Well, you know, I think that the, the, the number of the things you've mentioned are still alive and well, you know, yeah. addictions and affairs, and certainly money is a universal uh, source of tension uh, in couples. And so, you know, I think our lives are extremely complicated, and in some ways marriage is harder than ever before because of all the distractions, all the temptations, and, you know, also our very high aspirations for right. it, you know, that we really want it to be a long, intimate relationship. 
And, um, you know, in a very previous area, people might have been happy, pleasantly surprised that their relationship felt connected and loving, but weren't necessarily expecting uh, that the cottage industry of their family was going to result in an intimate human relationship. You know, so I think our expectations are high, and I think it's good they're high. I think what we do have... Uh, there's an advantage over previous generations in terms of this question of tools that you mentioned is I think we're a lot more emotionally intelligent than we used to be. I mean, right. that, that on a large scale. I mean, that the, the social sciences and psychology is much more permeating the culture. We understand a lot more about sexuality, for instance. We understand a lot more about the science of emotional connection. Um, and so I think we actually, you know, my book is really trying to help bring that to people in a very emotionally immediate way. Sometimes you read a book about how the brain works and it's telling you your dopamine's doing this and your serotonin's doing that and it's somehow you're supposed to translate that into something about your own felt experience right. and it's the bridge too far. So this book is really, it's talking about some of this these emotional discoveries we've made, but it's really doing it in a way that's, hey, you're right here, you're dealing with this problem, whether it's alcohol or affairs or aging or, you know, how do you think about this and how do you know yourself emotionally in a way that can be a tool to being closer? Mm. We're speaking with Daphne DeMarneff, and she is the author um, of The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together, and other a variety of other books. She's a clinical psychologist who works with individuals and couples in Corte Madera, California, and is also a contributing writer for Parents Magazine and other, other sources um, and other magazines. Uh, when you talk about this, Daphne, too, um, it also just seems like there are some things that we can do and do better. Give us some examples of what are what are some things I can do today to make my my relationship a little bit more emotionally connected, to to actually grow a little deeper love, so we can make it through the rough patch. Well, one of the things that I felt that I really discovered through writing this book, or I was able to articulate from my practice with couples, is that um, there are two factors that I think are absolutely central to getting along better with your partner today. One of them is self-awareness, and the other is self-responsibility. And here's what I mean by that. If I see two couples with the exact same problem, and in one couple, each person is able to say to the other, hey, I know what I'm doing that's a problem, that's self-awareness, and I'm going to try to work on it. That's self-responsibility. Those two things are incredibly powerful and meaningful to the other person because we know that when people can't apologize, when they blame the other for their own behavior, when they criticize the other for their own behavior, when they refuse to take responsibility or look within, that is when people feel most hopeless about being able to connect to their partner. So in other words, you may have a big problem. You may be, you know, attracted to someone at work or you may be drinking too much or you may, well, you know, or you may be, you know, spending too much money or whatever. But if if you can say, look, I know I have a problem. I know this is a problem. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to work on it. That makes a huge difference. Mm. And so it, you don't have to solve everything about your personality tomorrow, but you have to be taking responsibility for trying to be a better partner, a person more capable of closeness, a communicative person, and so forth. Yeah, and it seems like that right there induces health, I mean, and hope, because mm-hmm. I see there's a chance. Okay, he gets yeah. it, 
and he's willing to change or try to change. And then I guess that just has to be that just has to be worked on. I mean, you have to show some results. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're a person who keeps saying I'm working on it and you're not, I got it. I got that, it. <laughs> that is going to erode trust, right? Yeah. So, you know, but but I, what I'm trying to say is, we're not all perfect. No. You know, and we're but but it's the intention, right, and the direction, and the goal, and the effort, and the understanding that this is actually a problem for this person that you love and care about, and and you've taken that to heart. Do you sense? Um, that, I mean, we know that our teenagers, I mean, are not our teens, our 20-somethings are marrying later. We know mm-hmm. they're, um, they actually are having a, a more successful rate at their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, is, are they, is it rubbing off? Are we, are we getting this enough that we're handing down a good tradition of marriage? Or have we kind of made marriage kind of a taboo subject where people don't want it anymore? You know, it seems to vary so much. Um, you know, I think I really do. I write in the book how the, the people who grow up in families where their parents are genuinely happily married to each other have this unbelievable advantage emotionally, right? They've stayed, they know this in their bones, right. what, what it takes and what it is. But many, many of us did not grow up in that situation. And, 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 and the, the work there is to really, as I said, try to understand yourself, try to know who you are, try to be self-aware, self-responsible, etc. Um, but I, you know, I think there's so many different cultural pockets around this. I do think that people are coming up with all sorts of different arrangements. And, of course, we live way longer than we used to, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a challenge there. Um, but I do think that um, there is a role for parents to talk to their uh, young adult children about their wisdom or their experience or their own failures. Um, you know, kids sometimes don't really want to hear from you that much. They want to live their own life, and on some level that makes sense. But I do think it's valuable to think about what could I really impart about what I've learned about uh, intimate or long-term relationships because um, it's complicated. There's a lot of lot of stuff in there to, to figure out, and I think parents can be a resource for their kids. Absolutely, and and I guess that in the end is um, that's another reason why we we ought to work harder on our relationships so we can hand down a tradition that's a little healthier for others. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you know, sometimes parents, I teach a class to people who are about to have their first baby and they're, you know, concerned about various things and they'll say things like, you know, is it okay to fight in front of the kids? Or, you know, some people grew up in families where they never saw their parents fight and they feel that's a problem. Other people feel their parents were screaming at each other. That's a problem. I do think, and the research backs this up, that children seeing parents who are two individuals who are struggling through trying to come to a compromise or an understanding, that is a healthy modeling for them because intimate relationships are about struggling through problems and coming to some solution that's workable for both people. And if you can see your parents doing that in a way that's civil, that's caring, that's not explosive, that's not icy, you know, that is a huge benefit to your kids. And so I don't think people should be too afraid of showing differences or contradictions or conflict or even arguments as long as they're not, you know, as long as they're safe and um, civil and, um, you know, show that you're really trying. Right, right. Uh, as we wrap this up, Daphne, what would you say, if, if there's one thing, what, what's the one thing we can start doing today? The one thing yeah. that would make the biggest difference on helping us get through the rough patch? 
Well, you know, I mentioned self-awareness and self-responsibility. I think think to yourself, okay, I want to if I want to connect to this person, I'm going to have to be vulnerable. That's scary, and that's the work of this relationship. And you know, if I can say one thing to this person about how I want to share my feelings, how I care about their feelings, and have a deeper conversation, I would say start that today. Start there. Daphne DeMarna, thank you so much for your time, your great uh, insight, your and your willingness to be with us. Um, this is really, I think, one of the most important things we do on earth is getting married and, and creating that uh, intimate bond, that relationship that uh, Daphne was talking about where you're vulnerable, you're open to each other, and you're, and you're willing to be open and a a good, you know, safe space where someone else can share their vulnerability. The name of the book, again, is The Rough Patch, Marriage and the Art of Living Together. And you can go, uh, you can go find that, that. And again, go do whatever you can today to just express your willingness, your desire to be a partner who is open and sharing and and receiving of, of your other uh, of, your, of the heart of your other um, the people in your life. We will continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. Uh, up next, we'll be talking more about some of the uh, the lies that we may believe in ourselves, the, the lies that make it so that maybe we don't even grow our own sense of confidence in ourselves. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, uh, I've been talking about these ideas of every one of us, in fact. We we have little myths, little lies. I don't know what else to call them. Things that we think have to be a certain way. And um, they're, 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 they're lies that we tell ourselves that actually make it so we lose some self-esteem. We lose some self-worth. You know, like... All, one, one of the ones that I've already talked about is natural gifts are the only real gift, right? So if you don't do something naturally and you're not just naturally gifted at something, then it's then you obviously you're not as good as the one that actually has hard time learning math and then you work your way through it and then you figure it out. That's not as that's not as powerful in our world as just as the one that just naturally gets it. Right. So we have that belief. Another belief is that we can't handle certain things. Another belief or a lie that we kind of tell ourselves is that some things are just black and white, right? They're just black and white. And it's, it's either it's A or B. It's good or bad. It's, it's right or wrong, right? It's, it's yes or no. It's up or down. It's, it is what it is. It's just this black or white thing. And the irony about black or white is that it's all right in the eye of the beholder, and it also, isn't it also determined, isn't the judgment of whether something's right or wrong determined also in the depth of the understanding as to why the act took place? So isn't it true that the more you understand somebody, the more something doesn't necessarily become right or wrong? And isn't it also true that some actions are wrong and yet the motive behind it wasn't as wrong? Or vice versa. And so I I like that. I mean, I'm a big believer, you know, God is black or white, right? Except, you know, um, God also has in-depth understanding of the motive and the intent and the heart and the experience of what somebody has gone through before they do what they do. 
And I'm assuming they're not going to be judged just on the letter of the law, but maybe the spirit of the law as well. Life is pretty paradoxical, really. It's I've noticed that in sometimes the hardest things that I go through also have a very easy component to them. Or sometimes things are fun, but they're also complicated. And sometimes being complicated makes things more fun. And other times comping, having something complicated makes things less fun. And I've noticed that sometimes people can be nice and simultaneously they can hurt you. And you can love them and not want to be with them all the time. So things aren't always black and white. And I I want us all to kind of know that because the minute you assume everything is black or white, then you might be setting yourself up for the fact that everything on earth has to be good or bad. And everything on earth has to be now or never, right? We kind of dichotomize and we make everything an either or when many times there is an and involved. You can do both. And you can love somebody deeply and I don't need to be with you all the time. And that doesn't make it bad, right? So be careful of being too fixated on black or white thinking. Also, another one is everyone else has their um, has their act together. That is such an illusion, such a lie. When you look around and as somebody that sits down with four or five people a day whose lives are really strained and they're having a difficult uh, time in their life, most people don't have their act together. Most people just are hanging on by a thread. Most of us, you know, can't put it all together physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. We just can't do it all. And so the illusion that everyone else is doing so much better than you is nothing more really than just an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't, it's not the way it looks. So someone might be the most incredible, you know, nicest person in the world, and they can't do their taxes, and they owe 10 grand in taxes, and they give a ton to charity, and they don't, you know, they don't do everything they can at church to be the best they can be. This can all exist, and they're still, but they still look like they're perfect. The reality is, is we we don't need to compare. So one of the rules is just lose the comparison. You're not here to compare your game against everyone else's game. You're here to find your happiness, your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose. There's more to life than, you know, pretending like we've got it all together. We just sometimes, and you'll notice when you're really drowning in it, you could care less if everyone else thinks something, right? You're just trying to be alive and and be you. And the last myth I want to blow up is this idea that sometimes we just believe we're really lucky. I'm just so lucky. Um, Some of us believe like there's no way in the world, it's called imposter syndrome, that we actually are not sure that we should, we're not good enough to deserve what we're getting in life. So we might just phrase our life and our great advancements in life as just pure luck. I mean, if you want to attribute it to something, attribute it to blessings and God, if you want to attribute it to something, but don't just attribute it to some random thing of luck. Because the downside to being lucky is that if you're not lucky, then I guess you have no responsibility to do anything except just pray for luck, I guess. When uh, when you start to recognize that a lot of my life is because I work hard and I'm blessed from above. So count your blessings and work like a dog. 
That might be the best equation um, to explain your luck. You're not lucky. You're not an imposter to be so gifted and blessed. You've been blessed from on high and you've worked hard. And when you're blessed from on high and you work hard, things happen. And just as you could be lucky, tomorrow it could turn. And so let's still seek for further blessings from on high and let's still try to uh, work our way through it, right? Maybe blow up the I'm lucky myth. Otherwise, you may be abdicating your responsibility a little bit, just hoping that some leprechaun thinks you're magically delicious. Ah, There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the things you can do to manage your temper a little bit better. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Think about it, folks. Do you ever just lose it? Do you ever just lose your temperature or your temperature? Do you ever just lose your temper and you can't take it? Ugh! And off you go. You blow up. And then you feel that weird, strange guilt because, ah, oh, I just got to learn to control myself. We've all done it. We've all needed to to be better at managing our temper and, and managing our own um, – our own reactivity. And so we invited, uh, we had an interview with Gia Ganesh uh, a while ago about how we can control our temper, temper better. And we wanted to revisit some of that interview today. I started the interview by talking about what, asking about what are some of the things that I can do today to manage my anger? The first thing that you could do is you could take a pause and count to five. It's as simple as that. Just okay. count to five. Just count to five in your mind. Just good. focus on your breath and count to five. It's as simple as that. And the reason why this is powerful, although simple, is because it gives you and the situation a temporary pause. It helps you to take a different perspective and to get your emotions in control, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it, creates a, it just creates a little space for us, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. So that's a very important technique, and that ties us to the next step, which is um, t- kind of move away from the situation. If if you are in a place where you're able to step out, like let's say you are, you know, you're, like you said, you're rolling up your sleeve to go bash this person up, yeah. right? Yeah. If you can, just take a walk away. Walk away for a minute. Yeah. Just... And see if that is going to help you calm down. Well, and, and the walk away is, it's a distraction, but it's also, I guess, it's... Um... It's it's a diversion, but it also gets my energy out of me. I have energy that's building up, which is which feels like anger and the temper going off. But you're just saying take that energy and go use it. Yes, and if you're not in a place where um, you know you you can't just go for a run or exercise, then I suggest walk away. But if not, go for a run, go for a, go and exercise, go to the gym, go swim, go dance, put on some music and dance away. You mm. know. So those are the ideal ways to get that pent-up energy out of you because it's really waiting to get out of you. That's what it's trying to do. When you try to roll up your sleeve and get all that energy focused on your arm, it's trying to get out of you. So why not utilize it in a constructive way, right? Yeah. The next thing that I would like to talk about is uh, I call it splash your face. Mm. And I'll give you a little bit of background on that, uh, Matt. Um, For a long time, I've always seen people, you know, slamming doors or breaking things. You know, you've seen that in movies as well. You know, people sweeping things off the table, um, throwing uh, vases at the walls and stuff like that. And um, 
I've never felt the urge to do that when I was angry, and I always wondered why people did that, right? Yeah, <laughs> what is that about? That? <laughs> yeah, Matt. So I always wondered, and then I started digging a little bit deeper as to why people like to break things or slam doors and stuff of that nature. And uh, uh, what I discovered is that that temporary noise or the act of throwing something gives them that temporary pause that we spoke about a hmm. little earlier. Yeah, their, their, their pause is just a little more violent. Exactly. And they are probably not, um, some people don't know that they can take a pause in a different way. It could be as simple as that. Or just that they haven't paused, uh, you know, they've not taken that five-second pause that we spoke about a little bit earlier. So thereby they grab onto the nearest thing and slam it, right? Right. But I, then, I, I had uh, no idea that that's, that that fit of anger and, you know, the that violent reaction is is just their way of getting the energy out. So when you bring in this idea of splashing water on your face, mm-hmm. it, like if you just say, okay, I need to go to the bathroom and splash water on my face, then yes. that's that's actually a routine that you can start you know, incorporating into your life. Yes, and that's what I discovered. Like personally, when I felt angry, instead of uh, shouting or you know doing anything else, I discovered that just going to the sink and splashing cold water made a world of difference. Hmm. Feeling that cold, you know, that physical sensation on your, hit your face, and then the water dripping down, you've completely forgotten about what, what it is that is bothering you for that minute, right? Yeah, right. And gives you a chance to cool down. Yeah, and plus it, it removes you to another place. Exactly. So, so you're not in the room, because sometimes people might be trying to make you angry. You know, mm-hmm. they might be pushing your buttons, and so you're not in the same space with the person that was pushing the buttons, this might happen in a, be- a business meeting, or I've seen it in with attorneys and uh, people that were divorcing. Sometimes you just need to excuse yourself and go throw some water on your face. Yes, just run to the restroom. That's it. Excuse yourself. Yeah, that's great. And a couple other quick tips are meditating daily. Um, we've heard a lot about the health benefits and the mental benefits of meditation. So that causes our overall stress levels to go down. Talk, talk our, about meditation for a second, because I think every, you know, every culture does it different. Every person does it differently. And I think, I think a lot of us aren't quite sure what constitutes meditation. Like, did you have to sit there and get into a state of Zen like thinking or what, what could constitute meditation? I'm going to give you an oversimplistic definition of meditation, okay. but I think it will help understand. Yeah. It's just a way to stay in the moment and just be. Be the moment. I mean, you. it's as simple as that, Matt. It's just a way to connect with your inner self, stop the chatter in your mind. You, even if you can't stop the chatter, that's the most difficult part that people feel when they when they are asked to meditate. They're like, you know, my face is itching. You know, I, I oh, I have those laundry list of things that I need to get to and the thoughts like that that are passing you by, right? And meditation is a state where you can be able, you can watch those thoughts pass by. You cannot be those thoughts, hmm. and just watch those th- thoughts pass by. And you, and you, in the moment. you separate yourself. Your, mm-hmm. your, I would call it my spirit, but I separate myself from my thoughts, my moods, my, the moment, and I can actually almost sit as an outsider and and see those things. 
Exactly. You got it right, man. Well, that's yeah. powerful. Yeah. And, and by the way, that like you can do that at a light uh, waiting in your car, right? You can do that waiting in a line at the grocery store when you're stressed and you have 500 things to do today. Absolutely, Matt. That is correct. Um, meditation doesn't involve having to sit in a place for 20 minutes. There are what we call nowadays micro-meditation moments. You know, you just take one to three minutes anytime when you have time in your day. And ideally, you should do it like five times a day. And you just focus on your breathing. It's as simple as that. Just focus on how shallow or deep your breath is. And like I mentioned a little bit earlier, focus on your breath traveling inside you, reaching that belly, filling your belly up, and then seeing how it just depletes your belly and gets out of you. It's as simple as that. Meditation just constitutes being able to focus on that breath uh, a few times a day for a minute or so. Yeah. No, that's powerful. And And, and what's your – do you have another one? Another uh, trip, another trick that we can use to manage our temper? Absolutely, Matt. Another trip, uh, uh, trick or tip is to be able to journal, right? Write out your feelings at the moment in a journal. It's a journal that's private to you. That's not something you have to share with anybody. You don't have to email a letter to anybody about how you felt. Just write out what you felt. And that gives you a way to help reduce the intensity of the emotion that you were feeling that was causing that uh, temper burst. Yeah. And it also helps you clarify your thoughts and feelings. It helps you know better. And, you know, it could possibly even lead to help solving the problem that was frustrating you, at, uh, uh, you know. But because when you go back to a, uh, to what you've written after a moment of time, you may be able to see a different perspective yeah. that you were not able to see in the heat of the moment. I, You know what? And I think that's – I think we need more journaling. Plus, there's just the inherent ability to get your energy out on the issue by just writing. Writing is kind of tedious. It takes effort. And so your ability to journal it out might also get the energy out. Uh, Gia, these are great ideas. Go, for, you know, go exercise, splash your face, meditate, write it out, focus on your breath, count to five. As we wrap this up, Gia, what would you say if, if there's one thing that I could do, all of us could do today to immediately start to impact our ability to, to manage our temper, what would you say is the one thing we should start with, the one thing we should focus on first? I think it's mindfulness, Matt. Being able to be present at the moment, completely, fully present and engaged with whatever it is you're doing. It's like, let's say, for example, you're typing. Being aware of the physical touch of your keyboard and focusing on that, that's being mindful. Yeah. When I'm talking to you, I want to be fully present and engaged with you, Matt. That's being mindful. And right. that's, yeah, and that's that's Gia Ganesh, uh, a great uh, interview we did with Gia, uh, who's a career strategist and an empowerment coach, helping us all manage our tempers, helping us to be more likable, honestly, and be more in charge and in command of our own reactivity. Powerful stuff, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to give you the tools to make it through this crazy thing we call life. We'll continue more straight ahead 